Aloha Kako. This is the Aloha Friday Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Hawaii Talks. I'm Noe Tanigawa. If you've lost your job or been furloughed through this time, we are thinking of you. The State Department of Labor and Industrial Relations, DLIR, says there's a need for workers in health care, security service, delivery, and food supply, as well as prep areas. And I talked with DLIR Director Scott Murakami about a new program that's matching workers who need jobs with industries that still need workers. It's called Rudder for Reducing Unemployment Disruption and Driving Economic Regeneration. The state has $100,000 immediately available to offer companies $500 per new worker who is retrained and hired since March 1st. We knew that there are a lot of people who did housekeeping in the hotel. There are people who did cleaning in restaurants. From what we saw in terms of compatibility between the occupations, it wouldn't be that big of a switch to help them transition into healthcare. So Rudder was designed to efficiently transfer people between industries and between businesses. That's why the money goes directly to a business, because that's the most efficient way of us making sure that the business hires somebody and then gets the reimbursement for their training. You're in this position to have an overview of the labor market here. What are you seeing? I certainly am concerned about um, the consumer and the individual payment, right? Because whenever we have situations with large increases in unemployment like this, the labor market always seems to come back a little smaller. So the labor force participation rate goes down a bit. And then there are alternative measures of um, unemployment. And we notice those go up and stay up for a longer time, and they take a longer time to come down. So I'm concerned about those overall dynamics happening in this situation. But my biggest concern, of course, is making sure that our claimants have money so that they can go out and buy groceries and things. So that's been our focus now. Um, I have to say that I think the community and the, the, all of the claimants have been very patient with us. We've had some challenges, but we have fortified our systems as well as the personnel we have in our department. Were you folks able to create some workers from other state departments to help with, you know, unemployment claims? At the ending of February, we had seven personnel in our claims office. And that count now is up to 76 people. <laughs> You've so, been doing some retraining yourself. That's plus the sevens to focus specifically on processing claims. Within state government itself, people are starting to look at whether everybody there is is worth their paycheck, Scott. Is there some redistribution in state government that you're looking at right now? There is an effort to redistribute personnel in state government. I can share that with you. And I know it's been going on. We've been working directly with the state, with DHERD and the state personnel office for at least a couple of weeks from so I know that that effort's been underway in watching our personnel work they'll volunteer their time on the weekends they were here on Kuhio day you know even this past Saturday telling them maybe you know we're going to burn people out but people still showed up wanting to work and you know I think that's the nature of the people who work in our department because they realize that a lot of things we do protect the workforce well they see the individuals behind those huge, gigantic, unbelievable numbers. Yes. A lot of attention is being focused on unemployment insurance, but we also enforce the statutes on workers' comp, prepaid health, and on TDI. You know, all of those people represent some kind of need from our department, and that's something that everyone in our department takes seriously and, and is truly dedicated to ensuring that we can process these claims timely. You know, how many gig workers do you think are in this economy? I guess first I'll define gig as a 1099 employee, somebody mm-hmm. who does, I guess, gigs that are paid on 1099s. That's about, about 124000 Gee, that's a lot. And, and we haven't seen that group come in yet because we haven't gotten full guidance from the U.S. Department of Labor on how we're going to handle them. You know, the more efficiently we can transfer labor into jobs that are hiring now, the better off we'll be as a state. I've just checked with DLIR this morning, and so far, 83 employers have expressed interest. 19 are poised to go ahead with this rudder program. This morning, we can tell you that 207, geez, 207,126 unemployment claims have been filed since the 1st of March. We're thinking of each one of you.
And for you gig workers, instructions for serving 1099 workers through the CARES Act have come through, and they're being implemented. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. I'm Ira Plato. On the next Science Friday... As healthcare focuses on the COVID-19 epidemic, how does the crisis affect other types of healthcare? We'll look at some of the consequences rippling outwards, from just getting to see a doctor to the shortages of key medicines. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 1. It's widely known that the COVID-19 pandemic began in China. It's been called the China virus by the president and others. In March, the FBI warned that an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans is underway. A national registry of anti-Asian hate crimes was started three weeks ago and now has over 1,400 entries. At least one of them is from here in Haleiwa. This isn't the first time an anti-Asian wave swept the country, according to author, journalist, activist Helen Zia. She lived through the last wave, and it's a fascinating American story. Zia grew up in the counterculture 60s, experiencing the anti-war movement, black power, the women's movement, and she wanted to learn more about America's strong labor movement at that time. I went to get a job in the auto industry, which at the time was booming and was uh, part of the strongest benefits and wages that uh, workers could get in America. Minimum wage at the time was $1.50 an hour, and I was getting $10 an hour plus every benefit you can imagine in Detroit. So this was a labor force. Did you feel fully accepted as an Asian American? People, of course, looked at me pretty, you know, one of the rare Asian Americans and Asian American women working in an auto factory. But on the other hand, Growing up in New Jersey, where there were so few Asian Americans anyway, I was sort of used to that. And if I did my work, nobody cared. You know, yes, I had um, incidents of name-calling and stuff like that, but for the most part, you know, it was a community of minorities. I mean, 60 to 70% African-American workforce. Uh, the rest were um, uh, southern Caucasians, whites, who had migrated up to the north as immigrants themselves, in a way, to go work in the auto plants for that high-paying money. And so I was just one of the Detroit area has the largest Arab-American population outside of the Middle East. So even though being Asian-American was pretty uh, rare, um, it was a, a very multiracial workforce and community. So I was there, and this workforce was, you know, a, a very well-paid, hard-working bunch of people who pretty much got along most of the time. They had to. They had to work together. And then the auto industry collapsed because, um, you know, this may be ancient history to a lot of people, but there was a worldwide, worldwide oil crisis at the time, and uh, the cost of gas skyrocketed. Nobody could afford to drive the dinosaurs out of Detroit that got maybe seven or eight or nine miles a gallon. So nobody was buying those cars anymore. And what they were going for, if they bought any cars at all, were Japanese imports that were fuel efficient or VW Beetles. And those were the only cars people could afford to drive anymore. And millions of people got laid off. I did too. The misery and despair of people who had once made pretty good livings and had a future, a future so good that they wanted their kids and grandkids to work in those industries too because they could afford a home, a, a second home, a summer cottage, recreational mm -hmm. vehicles in addition to the two or three cars they had. And then they lost everything, including their futures. And this depression in the Midwest went on for years. 
When did you start really feeling it? It started in about 1979 uh, when the Iranian Revolution happened. The effects were immediate. I mean, the auto industry totally collapsed, and every supplier, every service, you know, the hotels, the restaurants, the um, people who service the auto industry, the other car parts, the tire makers, they all went out of business. Everybody was laid off. Nobody had a job. I would stand in unemployment lines that snaked way around many city blocks, and you'd wait there all day long hoping to get to the front. And this was in the dead of a Michigan winter. It was terrible. And the blame game began very early on. First, the auto companies blamed the workers. The workers blamed the auto companies. They all blamed the politicians in Washington. And then they all agreed on an enemy, Japan. It was Japan's fault because Japan was able to make better cars than Americans. And so all of that hatred, despair, and misery and frustration suddenly turned to Japan, to the Japanese, and anybody who looked Japanese, which, you know, I was one of them. And anyone who drove even a Japanese-made car, whether they were white, black, or any other color, uh, they could get shot at on the freeways. I mean, that's how angry people were. And it didn't help that all of this uh, anti-Japanese rhetoric also, of course, turned to war. What rhetoric? Well, the rhetoric about uh, we are at war. I mean, it sounds very familiar today. We are at war. This is a war. This is an economic war. It's just like Pearl Harbor, which unfortunately the uh, uh, Surgeon General uh, just invoked. And so what do we do when we're at war with Pearl Harbor? We kill them. We bomb the hell out of them. Lee Iacocca, who was the CEO of Chrysler at the time, said we should send back the Enola Gay. Let's send back atomic bombs. Bomb Japan. That was the rhetoric that came out every day. And for the ordinary worker on the street, people were taking sledgehammers to Japanese-made cars, shooting people who drove them. You see parallels today? There's no question about it. With all the, it's a Chinese virus, as though viruses know what race or ethnicity or country. All of that stuff has already sparked a, a strong racist reaction. I mean, very early on, even before there were any cases in the U.S., there was uh, empty Chinatowns all over the U.S., even though these are Chinese Americans who had nothing to do with China. So that began, you know, way back in, in January. Well, that happened in Honolulu, too. But the constant fear-mongering of, of people from Asia, which has been stoked for a very, very long time, you know, well before this virus, uh, has really exploded the amount of, of hate violence, harassment, um, hate language, bullying, kids being beaten up at school when schools were open. Can you feel it on the street at home there in Oakland? Oh, people are getting spit on, they're getting coughed on, and you don't know whether the person coughing on you actually has the virus. I mean, these are acts of violence. And I don't, you know, I don't think we should minimize the use of language and hate. In Midland, Texas, an Asian family went to a Sam's Club and some deranged guy took a knife and started stabbing them, including the two-year-old and the six-year-old. I don't know why that is not national news. This is just the beginning. You know, I was in Detroit when Vincent Chin was killed, and he was not the only one. There were many other violent attacks. We're at the beginning now. When everybody starts knowing people who are sick or even dying or passed away, not only that, people are going to be massively, on a massive level, unemployed. And if this goes on for months and months, which we're being warned it may, the hatred and the frustration and the misery and the anger is going to be pouring out. And I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think people do need to be prepared. Asian Americans need to be forewarned, and we need to reach out to our friends, to other organizations, to get organized, 
to prepare for this pandemic of hate virus just as, just as much as we're preparing for the other virus. Look at the past, Helen. What is the best response for Asian and Pacific Islander Americans and anybody? For one thing, it's to be informed. We ourselves, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, people who may be blamed because of our appearance, which is what racism is about, um, need to be aware that it's out there, not to be caught by surprise. I have many family members and friends in Hawaii, and I know that because there is a, a high population of, of uh, Asian-looking people, as well as a, a multiracial, multicultural population, you know what? People in Hawaii are more used to getting along with people and not being so alert to a stare that might be racist and unfriendly. Um, for me, growing up in New Jersey, I grew up with that. I can feel it. I can walk into a room and know it's there. And I think that's a level of, of, of awareness or immunity or body protection as well, just to know that this is out there. And second of all, to, to um, not be terrified, but to take precautions. And some of those precautions are to not go to places that might be dangerous and not, you know, in, in other words, where there might be people around who might not like you. Like Sam's Club? Yeah, but, mm -hmm. you know, to not be surprised. In other words, I might go for a walk mm. with friends, or if I'm going to go out alone, I'm going to start letting people know where I'm going and how long I think it'll take for me to get back. And I know this might seem so weird in um, a state like Hawaii, but beyond that, it's not just an individual thing, and I think that's the main thing we have to know. We have governments, we have communities, churches, organizations, nonprofit organizations that we can rely on, and if they're not aware of this whole situation that we are heading into and this other racist pandemic, we need to activate them and, and to reach out and be organized. And that is one of the things that came out of that whole period of anti-Asian racism in the 80s. New organizations formed. Asian Americans started reaching out to each other. You don't have to be Chinese or Japanese to experience this. We already know more than a 1,000 reports of anti-Asian racism were made on these um, websites in the first two weeks, more than a 1,000. More than 60% of those reports were non-Chinese, you know, people who yeah. look Chinese or just look Asian in a way that somebody wanted to direct their anger toward. We all need to raise our own awareness, help to educate other people in our communities about what's going on. Then we'll not only get through it, we can get through it stronger and, and fight against racism toward any people because when any people are subject to prejudice and, and hatred, that hurts everyone, and we have to remember that. Writer, journalist, activist, Helen Zia's latest book is Last Boat Out of Shanghai, the epic story of the Chinese who fled Mao's revolution. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Cole Academy Child Development Centers, providing services to families who are required to keep working and who have no alternative for in-home care. Learn more at thecoleacademy.com. The COVID-19 pandemic isn't the first wave of deadly infection to hit Honolulu. The bubonic plague of 1900 had a huge hand in shaping the city we know today. It had already hit in Asia when a ship landed with a crewman dead from the disease. That ship was quarantined, but no one considered the rats on board scurrying down those mooring lines. Honolulu's first case was confirmed near Powahi and Smith Streets, and the whole Chinatown area was put into quarantine and forced by military troops. You can see the photos there in the state archives. I ran across a detailed article about the Chinatown fire in Plumbing Engineer magazine. It was written by Sam Danaway, who had his own fire protection company here in Honolulu for 30 years. I talked with Mr. Danaway and asked him what he learned about that Chinatown fire of 1900. Well, the obvious answer is that it's very similar to what's 
going on right now, you know, there, there's some comparisons that can be made. Right? Like what? I think the biggest thing is how dif- difficult it is for leadership to, you know, make very tough decisions, not really knowing if they're correct decisions because it's kind of the first time you're doing this kind of stuff. Chinatown was cordoned off and 50 acres or so became a quarantine zone. I really can't say how they made that decision, but that area had about 7,000 residents, and of course most of them were were Asian uh, and some Hawaiians. And it was also the heart of Chinese entrepreneurs, the, biz- the business uh, that was going on, which uh, was was growing and expanding. To a worrisome extent, you think? <laughs> <laughs> there was concern there because there was really no building code. Quite a few two-story wood frame buildings located closely together, lack of good infrastructure, lack of proper sanitation like sewers and those kind of things, water supply. Descriptions of the area at that time were pretty unsanitary, right? Yes. Kukui, Nu'uanu, Queen, and River. Could you at all get into the minds of the people who were making these decisions? Yeah, they did actually do. Uh, the, the initial decision to burn only included, the original decision only included the buildings where an infection occurred, and it was only those buildings that were, in their minds, burnable, the, the, the wooden buildings. The concrete buildings, they did do a plan of, of disinfection. I guess as the cases increased, that strategy kind of changed to burning entire blocks, and then around the same time, the Board of Health decided that uh, the ultimate goal was to burn out the entire quarantine area. Was there any protest or questioning of that? I I think there was quite a bit. If somebody could go back and read those Asian language newspapers, I think you might find a lot of that type of thing in there. Uh, There were cases of bubonic plague outside of the Chinatown area. Yes. Yes, it was concentrated in the Chinatown area, but there were a dozen or more, and they definitely did not take the step of quarantine in the area. No, they didn't do that. You know, so. Can you imagine the day that they set this fire? Yeah, it was very calm. and, and uh, Right, it was where, it seems like where maybe Kukui Plaza is now. Yeah, and it, I think there's a plaque actually around around that area commemorating where the fire actually started. Yeah, it was in the morning, and, and the, they set it right behind Kamakapili Church. Of course, shortly after they started the fire, uh, the winds changed. The fire whipped up, and uh, the burning embers got lost into the air. It caught the spire on fire, and it was basically beyond the reach of fire department hoses. Fire department was, they had their two brand-new engines on either end of Baratania Street. The pressures in the hose couldn't reach high enough to reach the spire, and it basically generated all these burning embers, and the wind was pushing it towards the harbor, and the remainder of Chinatown was basically downwind. During the fire, uh, of course, they had a big problem because they needed to evacuate Chinatown. You know, there was infection in this quarantine area, so they couldn't just disperse the residents to the crowd, so... For a while, there was, I guess, on the verge of panic because they weren't letting people out of Chinatown. Ultimately, they set up a corridor that ran down King Street to a yard of Kauai Hau Church, set up a camp, a temporary camp there, I guess, and basically channeled all the evacuees down King Street to, to, the, to that church area. And uh, Look at the photographs. Uh, all the shopkeepers are standing along the route to Kauai Hau Church, and you can see several of them have axe handles in their hands. You close your article with three questions. Um, was it necessary to use fire to eliminate plague in Chinatown? Was the first question. Can you come to a conclusion on that now? Uh, I don't know if there's any real answer to that. Uh, I think we're going to have some of those same questions about what's going on right now. I mean, were the things that were done enough or too much here's another question would fire have been the solution if the plague area had not been populated predominantly by minorities what did you find on that I just basically saw a bunch of questions about it I think you have to basically look at the facts you know and and draw your own conclusions I I think uh, the the you know the leadership was basically the same leadership that was there 
Could it lead to the other question you asked? Was Chinatown burned to remove the competition created by a thriving Asian business community? Yeah, I, I saw some speculation about that. You know, it, it uh, at best it was it was it was convenient for the other business owners. You know? Was it you know intentional? I, you know, who knows? You know? And there was some positive effect to it. And basically, uh, in, in fact, uh, Chinatown was somewhat of a segregated area. That particular fire helped disperse Asian residents throughout throughout Oahu ultimately, and I think that. It was kind of like a forced desegregation in a way, so I think that was that could have been looked at as a very positive outcome. Hmm. We've been talking about Honolulu's Chinatown Fire of 1900, deliberately set to stem the bubonic plague. Many thanks to Sam Danaway, fire protection engineer with Kaufman Engineering. The Aloha Friday Conversations, a chance to look more closely at art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. And today we're looking at responses to the COVID-19 pandemic that's touched all of our lives. People respond to fear and uncertainty in different ways. At the end of March, Amnesty International noted an increase in gun sales across the U.S. And after checking with several gun shops, I can tell you sales are up here in Hawaii as well. I ended up talking with Mark Redeker, the owner of Maui Ammo and Gun Supply in Wailuku. A former police officer, Mr. Redeker said his store is pretty much sold out. This is what people are really afraid of, is that someone's going to break in and take what they have. All that toilet paper that they stood in line for and all the, all the cans that they stood in line for and all the stuff that they stood in line for that they got, that they, that they prioritize to get that stuff, they want to make sure that they keep it. I don't know how to react to that. It's, it's very difficult. I mean, it, it really is. Because as a, you know, I'm a retired police officer. I've got, uh, I have 15 years as law enforcement. What I'm giving you, I've heard in my gun store. And these are the things that were said in my gun store. People are coming into the gun store and they're walking in the door and these are people who have never purchased a gun before in their life, and the one lady looked at me just yesterday and said, I would have never thought to buy a gun, but I'm afraid. I don't know what's happening. What percentage do you think are these, like, first-timers? Now it's probably close to 70 to 80 percent. Three weeks ago, it was probably close to, it was only 10 or 20 percent. Because as this virus spreads, as they start hearing more and more about the spread, People are nervous. They're very, very nervous. Now, the other problem that's happened, the word has gotten out, Maui County is releasing their prisoners, the Maui County Jail. They cut loose 70 prisoners yesterday. They're going to cut loose more in the next couple of days. People are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And you have the, you have the chief of police that stands up at a press conference and says, we're only going to respond to major violent crimes in progress. Now you have, we're only going to respond to violent crimes in progress. We're going to open up the jails and turn loose 70 to 200 Class B felons. The stores are running short on food. No wonder people are running a little. Oh, and by the way, the legislature, if they can reconvene, they're going to, they're going to start banning stuff. So, what do you mean, like what? Well, they're going to ban magazines. Or, uh, they, what they want to do is they want to make sure that that if you're going to buy ammunition, you have to be able to prove that you have a gun that shoots that ammunition. Why not? Why? I mean, of course, right? No, not of course. I mean, the, Why? Well, what, well, what happens if you call me up and say, Mark, I've never shot a gun before. Can you teach me how to shoot? And I go, well, sure. Stop by Maui Ammo and Gun and pick up, pick up 50 bullets of 9mm, and then I'll meet you at the range on Saturday, and I'll show you how to do it. You can't buy ammo under the new law. Uh, yeah, okay, hypothetically, right. Well, that's mm, the laws that they're saying. trying to pass. These are all that's laws. That's a pretty rare circumstance, though, isn't These it? are all This is the first thing that California did after they got this law passed. The next law that California passed was that you can only buy 50 bullets a month. We became a tourist attraction. 
because people I'm from always guns and ammo <laughs> was a tourist attraction because people from California could not buy ammunition in California. So they went to Hawaii on vacation and they would buy ammunition from us to take it back. Now, people in Hawaii heard this and they started getting nervous. Is it really necessary to have that high a capacity? I mean, couldn't you like go use several smaller capacity ones? You know what well, I mean? Was it really necessary to have a Corvette Stingray? So it's just Is it like, really necessary to have a Dell high-end computer when you could buy a cheaper computer? Oh, so it's just the idea of limitation. Exactly. Picture this. In the last 10 years, my gun store has sold over 40,000 of these magazines of more than 10-round capacity for rifles or shotguns. And we're just one store. The law that they're proposing, it makes it a felony, punishable by five years in prison to have one of these magazines. So you've got a lot of guns there. You're saying a lot of them. We have a lot of people that go hunting. I mean, you're telling people they got to stay at home. The calls for trespassing and things have gone up significantly because people are out trying to find deer to eat. What percentage of your normal gun sales are actual hunters? I would say probably 60%. Maui, that's why. Yep, Maui is very different. We have birds to hunt. We have pheasants to hunt, we have grouse to hunt, we have pigs, and we have deer, and we have we have goats. So there's a lot of hunting that goes on. So you are actually emptying out the store. Yeah, yeah. Especially for the for the self protection calibers, they're gone. People are concerned. They're concerned. How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to protect my family? You know. And then you have the you have the chief of police stand up and say, Yeah, we're only going to respond to violent felonies. People went crazy. The day after he said that, my shop, we had we had 50-something people in line. Help me with this part of it, Mark, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, you say there are a lot of first-time people buying, too. I mean, would it ever be a concern for you that after this COVID thing, there's just going to be a whole lot more guns out in the community? Oh, there's going to be a ton more guns in the community. But what's going to happen is if they follow the law, they will lock it up and keep it secured until the next time there's a problem. Mr. Redeker referred to proposed bills before the state legislature that would limit some ammunition sales, secure inherited guns, and crack down on so-called ghost guns that can be made from online kits with no serial numbers. The ammunition measures are part of a package endorsed by the Honolulu Police Department after two police shootings here on Oahu. Redeker also mentioned a prisoner release on Maui. Today, the Maui News is reporting a 27% decrease in inmates at the Wailuku Jail as part of a statewide effort, and that's to allow distancing measures, of course. In a report to the state Supreme Court, Special Master Daniel Foley, overseeing the releases, wrote that they're the collaborative work of county prosecutors, public defenders, the attorney general, and public safety departments. Foley recommends that the releases continue on a case-by-case basis. Now, in the time of a global pandemic, how do we react to fear, uncertainty? Buying a gun makes sense to some. For others, this could be a time to seek inner resources. The late Ram Das wrote the influential book, Be Here Now, virtually igniting the new age. Raghu Marcus is executive director of Ram Das's Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. I asked, what kind of advice Ram Das would have for us now? And Marcus said, the first essential truth Ram Das would offer is, don't run away. Okay, let's talk about the virus, okay? I might wake up, right? in the morning and I'll have a cough. Uh, so immediately my mind goes, oh my God, uh, am I dealing with here? Is this the beginning of the virus? And you know, you get that little flip in your stomach of fear, right? mm-hmm. which we all know. And instead of avoiding it by in whatever I could possibly think I could do to stop thinking about it, maybe I gotta go take this, uh, maybe if I take that, you know, whatever meds that I might have around or supplements or whatever, instead of allowing the mind to just chase after what it is that could uh, interrupt this feeling, 
it's just, okay, I'm having this feeling. It's okay. I'm human. I can have this feeling. It's human to have this feeling. But I'm going to embrace it a little bit. I'm going to let it to sit. I'm not going to run off and try and do something about it. I'm going to let it just sit here. And I'm going to find a place inside me that I can witness the uh, the vibrations that are going on in my body of fear. I can witness it, not from a place that I'm going to judge it, but from a, a truer place that is more connected to who I am, which is not somebody that is absolutely glued to my believing my thoughts, believing my emotions, believing the story I tell myself. So the initial thing is just, instead of running, it's to allow it to be and embrace it in a way that um, it dissipates the actual uh, vibrations that are going on in the body. Have and you ever felt fear, real fear, in a situation like that and deal with it? You know, the small example of, of having a cough or a sneeze in the midst of all of this or being out and somebody else is doing it and you immediately jolt backwards from it. Yes, fearful thoughts or fearful uh vibrations inside my body, emotions are wanting to take me over so that I I have no choice at all but to uh, recoil and react in a big way. Yes, no, I do. Uh, the first thing that I do, honestly, would be to take several deep breaths out of the center of my being, center of my chest, inviting it, and within that breath, calming down these visceral kind of reactions and then from the calming down place I sit with it just literally sit with it allow it to be and then you see naturally that it dissipates and once you start to see it dissipate you can go further into yourself where you are not attached to that thought or that emotion it's possible Every one of us has that opportunity to let go of this fear. And when we do that, you know, we're, we're more able to radiate positivity around us, which, boy, we all need a lot of positivity these days, do we not? <laughs> I think we do. Raghu Marcus is his executive director of Ramdas's Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. In, in Hawaii, we've got a strong meditation community, I and mean, there are a lot of ways in, and we'll look at more of them next time on the Aloha Friday Conversation, an hour of art, culture, and ideas on Hawaii Public Radio. Support for The Conversation comes from PBS Hawaii. Insights at PBS Hawaii features a live weekly discussion on the effects of COVID-19 in Hawaii, Thursdays, April 16th, 23rd, and 30th. pbshawaii.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. Mm, love that feeling of the super groupers. You know, well, we got the kids underfoot here. Why not carve out some time to really pay attention to them and maybe enjoy something together? I'd like to introduce you to Louise King Lanzalotti. You hear her weekdays 3 to 6 on HPR2, and th that is a perfect extension of her experience. After years in arts and theater education, Louise founded Kaliko Lehua, an El Sistema-style music program here on Oahu, and the goal of the program is getting music to underserved areas. Super happy she could be in the studio today, six feet away, with ideas for family listening in the classical realm. And it turns out to be perfect timing, too. 
It is the perfect timing. Everyone's at home, and, mm-hmm. you know, why not listen to wonderful music of all types? Yes. <laughs> I, one of my earliest memories of listening to Buck music and, you know, harpsichord, all kinds of things, but I didn't know what it was. I was just listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you bounced around your typical tropical Hawaiian house, <laughs> with classical music going on, it really was much more a part of a lot of people's lives. Right, it was. It, it was. showed up in cartoons, it showed up in, in pop culture a whole lot more, really. A whole lot more. Now we just hear it kind of in soundtracks, which is pretty awesome. But, uh, but you've got something particular for kids. Yes, um, starting uh, on Wednesdays in the first hour of Classical Pacific, which is from 3 to 6, I'm going to be doing a segment that's for families, and it Mm. can be just music you can share with your children. Sometimes it will be for the kids, music for children, and sometimes it will be just wonderful music that they can share. Hmm. Uh, How are you going about choosing these pieces? Well, you know, there's all kinds of classical music out there. Uh, One of the types that works really well is using music that tells a story. Uh-huh. So when music tells a story, then you can follow that story in your mind and, uh-huh. and hear the music. And, of course, you can always make up your own story. But that's a <laughs> different topic. And then another type of music is music that's written for children, like the Carnival of the Animals, like uh, the Young People's Guide to the Orchestra. Those are a little more formally for children, but they can be listened to just as equally well by adults. Uh-huh. Just for pure pleasure. Well, what do you have for us today? Well, I took two segments from Carnival of the Animals by Camille Saint-Saëns. And there are a lot of movements to that, short movements of all different kinds of animals. So I chose the chickens. Uh You can hear scratching and picking at food. (laughs) And then the most famous piece from this from this entire work is the swan which is very graceful and moving beautifully and the music is really gorgeous helps us to connect to abstraction. That's kind of how I think about music all the time. Mm-hmm. So how could a family talk about a piece like this? This one's very easy. That's one reason I'm doing it next week, because they can play with all of these animals. What is this animal doing? What does it sound like? Is it, does it sound like a happy animal? Is it active? Is it funny? Those are some funny ones. And then there are some just very beautiful composers get us to feel a certain way. <laughs> well, I think they spend their lifetime trying to do that. And, you know, in Western music, there have been sort of conventions, sets of rules that they use either musically or in terms of the form or the rhythms that they get very good at using as means of communication that are nonverbal, which is really part of why it works. I think it, it goes under the verbal and meets us in our hearts and our guts, basically. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine um, families actually sitting down and listening to classical music Another thing that you can do is just not worry about whether something is classical or not. Sing with your children. Play music, dance with your children. Feel through the movement. But I think the fact of getting parents and children together to listen to music is really, really important. Well, thanks so much for getting us started, Louise. Looking forward to listening next Wednesday, that's for sure. Thank you so much for having me, Noe.
After the Merry Monarch was canceled, I emailed Sig Zane, that pioneer fashion and lifestyle designer, to see if he'd talk with us about how things were feeling in Hilo. He said, no, no can. Why did I ask him? Because he and his wife, Nalani Kanaka'ole, Kumuhula of Halau Okekuhi, are thought leaders here. I will never forget the pop-up show of six designs they brought to Waikiki for Inner Island Terminal. I mean, those were designs that erupted out of Hawaii Island with story, intention, imagery of migration, sea animals, and it looked utterly contemporary. Okay, then, last week I saw their son, Kuhao, had started an Aloha Friday Pauhana hangout there at Sig Zane Design. So I called Sig again to ask, how are things feeling in Hilo? Kind of really nice. I mean, I, <clears throat> it's terrible in a sense that, uh, you know, the world is in this crisis and I'm happy. Oh. You know, yes, there's a lot of things going on and I feel bad for my employees because I heard that the wait for unemployment is taking much longer, all that kind of stuff. But I kind of like the the pace now. It's really slow. It's quiet. And the best part is that it's just love that is going around now. You know, every day I think of people that I haven't been in touch with, and I send them a note of love. And at this special time, you really want to share that love yeah and, and then it's only Melanie and I at home and and it all hours time no one else you know it's, there's no hula now um mm-hmm. and so we we get to just be with each other and like last night I think I'm going to open a bottle of wine mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it, it's just nice to be there and not rushed because just imagine if it was Mary Monarch we would be running and we almost don't have time to talk because there's so much going on in our heads that we're trying to cover sure. ground and make sure everything is aligned and everything. <laughs> this very weekend would have been. Yeah, it would have been the start. I want to know what kinds of seeds of things you and the Lenny got going there. What have you been reading? Well, what are you What are you looking at? Oh, you know, I'm really loving the Chinese drama. <laughs> Like, for example, the royal palace kind in the old days, and they all dress up in their their Chinese costumes and stuff. And then they have long hair, and they have all these beautiful <laughs> ornaments. And the furniture is wonderful. The, the uh, architecture is great. The gardens are beautiful. And then, you know, they speak in, in philosophical, in poetic sentences. I love that. <laughs> I never had a chance to really just delve into it, you know. And, well, actually, I think truthfully, it's now coming back at that that want to know about that. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, way back in the day when I was nine, nine years old, I acted in a Chinese movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 55 Days in Peking. It was filmed in Madrid. On the set, I was sometimes... A peasant kid, all in cotton. But once in a while, I got to play part of the royal palace. And those clothes were like what I see in the movies now. So I, I get this little, you know, this this fun time. I, and it's taking me back to that. <laughs> You've worn I'm them. enjoying it. Yeah. I, I, I've been there. <laughs> oh, we may go there, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of nice, and um, but you know, I I have to admit that there's one thing that is keeping me sane in all of this, mm-hmm. and that is surfing. The beach is closed, but they allow the surfers, and we all keep our distance. We do have that piece. Honolulu, it's only two miles north of the town. Yeah, so it's close and it's perfect, and it's cold and it's clean, and and I get to see the sunrise every morning. You know, I'm the morning crew. I, I get up early and I'm out there when the sun rises. And, and yeah, you know, every day is different. These are my best friends out there. And mm-hmm. we go there to just laugh. And, you know, I think that that's one of the best remedies nowadays, just to laugh and laugh and, and laugh hard. And, you know, and, and yeah, we make jokes of, of what's going on right now, but, we all take it seriously in a sense that we have to, we are the protectors of our family. We have to 
provide it, but at the most part, keep them healthy yeah, and safe. Yeah. So I think that that's the camaraderie that we, we share. And, you know, but it's good to laugh. But are you going to do, um, like a talk story from your, from your shop or anything? Well, this is what my son has arranged and he's a guy, you know, I, I have been practicing social distancing for all my life until he was born and then he wanted me to be the social king and I, anyway, every Aloha Friday at four o'clock, he pulls in people and uh-huh. we do a live thing on Instagram. Actually, we take people up to Kayao, which is our creative space. Well, Kuhao has set up a bar. And so we sit at the bar, and the whole rule is if you want to participate in this, you need a glass in your hand. Last week, Kuhao told me, you can't just sit there pretty. You have to talk. I did all the talking. I said, because I don't have a plan. And, you know, you, you have this whole thing going rolling. And, you know, I just sit there and nod my head and I'll, I'll throw in something like, oh, I remember you in a malo. And yeah, then, you lob in those cherry bombs. Yes. <laughs> well, I can't wait to watch myself. Oh, so well, you you better have your green bottle with you, huh? I will. I got plenty. <laughs> Instagram at four on Fridays, Sig Zane Designs. You know the rules if you want to participate. Now here's some motivation. Ka'ao Creator Boys, Troy Fernandez, and the late, great Ernie Cruz Jr. You're not going to be driving anywhere, so hey, happy Aloha Friday. Sounds like thunder, gotta head for the high ground. White water coming, no fooling around. Oh, that's about it for this Aloha Friday conversation. Coming up next week, my tireless colleague Catherine Cruz and the amazing conversation staff will be back at it with the kind of depth and breadth this crisis requires. This program is produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, Jason Upai, and Russell Subiono. Mahalo, Gypsy 808, for our theme music. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Let's take care of each other and meet again next Monday, of course, for more of the conversation.